So what is the mission of Grace Meridian Hill? You can find our mission statement printed in the electronic liturgy that you might have at home or that you might be following along in your device or on the screen uh, above me. But let me read it for you. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is intentionally spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, Petworth, and beyond. And today, we're focusing on one part, one component of that vast vision, this vision that we know to be impossible as far as human endeavoring is concerned, only possible by the help of the Holy Spirit. We're focusing on our commitment to be and to become a cross-cultural community. That is a community that's intentionally and self-sacrificially one that gathers together a racially and culturally diverse mixed group of people and gathering one another into caring and honest and mutually dependent and yes, sometimes messy relationships in what the Bible calls a family of Christ. It's this vision that we want to be a community that's learning to confront and talk about race and racism with honesty, with humility, with repentance, with forgiveness, that we want to be a community that's seeking healing from our many racial wounds, a community that endeavors to be cross-cultural for the glory of Christ, who alone can bring us into rich relationships and community together. There's much to this vision, and in fact, even right now, if you're on our email list, you should have received a brief summary of this one component of our vision, an email that went out just a few minutes ago. But we want to talk about one part of this today. Today, we are looking at one place in the Bible that speaks to this vision, and that's Psalm 87, a prayer, a song inspired by God speaking into this vision, a song that's addressed not to a person, but actually a song that's addressed to a city, a city called Zion. And so you might ask, what is this Zion, this city? Well, in the Old Testament, you may or may not know that Zion was a synonym for the city of Jerusalem, almost like a nickname. It was, of course, Jerusalem was Israel's capital city, and there was a a mountain, a hill that went by that name. Sometimes, specifically, Zion referred to this hill on which Israel's temple was built. And of course, the temple was a big deal. That was the meeting place of God, God's sort of local address, where he descended from heaven to be near with, to be intimate with. With his people. And in fact, because this idea of Zion was so bound up with the temple and with the idea of the presence of God on earth, what we find in the poetry and the prophets of the Old Testament is that Zion begins to be used more symbolically to describe the day when God will be more fully present, the day when he will return, the day when he will 
finally reign as king, when he would make all things right, when God's perfect presence and glory would fill all things. In other words, Zion became a symbol of heaven. So in the New Testament, it picks up on this theme, this language in places like 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews 12. There, the Christian life is described as sort of a manifestation and an embodiment of the life of Zion, a foretaste of heaven. And the church itself is described as sort of a miniature model of the life of Zion, heaven here on earth. See, this in Psalm 87 is a song about Zion, the heavenly city. It's a song about what heaven will be like one day. In fact, what the church as the heavenly community of Christ is called to be today. And which is why in this Psalm of Zion, this city of God, it's fascinating to hear this song describe a vision of a city that is cross-cultural in its composition, in its people. Well, how so? This unique heavenly city, the city of Zion, is described in this psalm as a glorious city, a reconciled city, a reborn city, and a beloved city. Let's take a look at each of those characteristics briefly. First, it's a glorious city. This psalm describes Zion the city of God as a city of glory. As it says in verse 3, glorious things are said of you, city of God. And what is it that makes it so glorious? Well, this right here in verse 4. God says, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush. The psalmist names people from all over the world, cultures of people who uniquely reflect the image of the glory and the radiance of God. People who have come together as one people, transformed by the grace of God, welcomed by the goodness and the truth of God in Christ. You see, friends, every person created in this world is created as an image, as a little picture of the very face of God, but not just individually. As we dwell and represent different cultures and peoples, we as representative of those peoples also image forth and represent the very face of God of God in different ways, highlighting different aspects of the character and the nature of God. In other words, cross-cultural community as we gather together different peoples, we collectively reflect the glory of God. You see, friends, this is not just a sociological project. This is not just about sort of living in harmony with each other in a merely human sort of way, as true as those things are. This is a project of giving the world a glimpse and a picture of who God is. The glory of God. 
This is, in fact, because we are an image of God collectively, a cross-cultural community, is, in the words of our dear brother, Pastor Erwin Ince, in the book that he wrote, it is a picture of a beautiful community, a radiant community. Even as we hear in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, well-known verses that are applied to this theme of cross-cultural community, a heavenly vision again, the city of God that the apostle John saw, this is what he says, I looked and there before me was a, a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A city of glory. And we're called to a, a fresh vision of Zion in this fashion, a, a heavenly cross-cultural city, and our calling is to pray that that city might be more and more manifest in this city in which we live, Washington, D.C., and little by little manifest even in our church. Foretastes and previews and glimpses of the cross-cultural glorious city of God in our relationships, in our small group gatherings, in our corporate worship, in our words, in our deeds. Behold this glorious calling. Friends, our invitation to cross-cultural community is not just an invitation to this church. It's an invitation to live for the glory of God. Secondly, what we have in this psalm is a picture of a reconciled city. A glorious city, a reconciled city. Who were these nations listed here in verse 4? These different ethnic groups in this poem. Did you notice? Do you know that Rahab was a poetic nickname for Egypt? And Egypt, of course, was the land of the people who had enslaved the Israelites for generations as recorded in the book of Exodus. Babylon brutally crushed the nation of Israel, destroying their temple, raping and pillaging their people, trafficking them as slaves in exile. Everything that was held sacred was destroyed by the Babylonians. Philistia, was in perpetual military conflict with Israel. They killed thousands of Israel's men on the battlefield. We know of one conflict alone, according to 1 Samuel chapter 4, in which Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers in one battle. Cush, also known as Nubia, is a reference to the southern region of Egypt, now modern-day Ethiopia. Tyre was a culturally Canaanite city known as one of the chief enemies of the people of Israel. I mean, listen, folks, if we get a little bit of the biblical history behind these different peoples and nations, we have to understand that it would have been shocking for the average Israelite to open their scriptures to read this psalm 
and to find that God is showing favor in his heavenly city even to these. Shocking to the average Israelite, even scandalous to hear that the grace of God might envelop their enemies. They might have been tempted perhaps to say, what are they doing here? How did they make the cut? Here were nations, peoples, ethnicities that you might have found on Israel's most wanted list. Warring nations, hostile nations, unreconciled nations. See, Zion is a city that brings together even those who were counted as former enemies. Zion isn't merely a city of multi-ethnicity, it's a city of healed hostility. A city of reconciliation. You know that word reconciliation? Bringing formally hostile peoples together in renewed relationship. I mean, can we pause for a second as we even use that word to talk about what the Bible means by reconciliation? And this is important because in recent years, it seems that the ways in which the church has applied this phrase, racial reconciliation, oftentimes it's a diluted version of it that seems to mean more of let's downplay differences, let's come together in harmony, and let's just move forward kumbaya. The Bible has something far more robust and rewarding held out before us. What is reconciliation? If you were to scour the Bible through and through and just said, you know, what does it look like to heal relationships, reconciled relationships? Well, it would tell you that it involves at least three elements, repentance, forgiveness, and repaired relationship. And you cannot remove any one of those pieces, skip over them and call it reconciliation. As far as what repentance in cross-ethnic or racial contexts are concerned, of course, we're talking about the need for repentance for personal racial sins as well as corporate sins also called injustices in society. Naming those things, owning those things, acknowledging those things, being on the floor on our knees over those ways in which we have perpetrated evil and harm in people's lives repentance, which if you were to ask the old Puritans, for example, Thomas Watson from the 16th century, what does repentance entail? What does this look like? He wouldn't tell you if you read his book, Doctrine of Repentance, well, you just got to feel sorry and then you're done. No. He says, look, repentance involves this. Number one, sight of your sin. You need to actually stare the sin that you committed in the face, acknowledge it and know it. Sight of your sin. Secondly, not just sight, but sorrow for your sins. You let it hit you right here in the heart. You need to feel something for it to be genuine repentance. Then thirdly, confession of sin, where you bring it most especially to God, but also to those whom you sinned against. You say it out loud, you agree with their judgment that you have wronged them, harmed them, sinned against them. Then fourthly, shame for sin. That kind of related for sorrow for sin, but you are called to, meant to, supposed to feel the weight of your wrongs. 
But the next also hatred for your sin. So you're not just analyzing it objectively. Well, I know this is what I've done or this is what we have done and these are just the facts. No, you feel it and you abhor it. You hate what has happened and what you have done. First and foremost, as a violation against God, because all of our racial sins are first and foremost against God who made those who are in his image. But then also hatred for the ways that we have violated and harmed our neighbor, our brother, our sister. But not just sight and sorrow and confession and shame and hatred for our sin. But Thomas Watson also says, again, the 16th century Puritan writer, theologian, and author, he also says restitution for sin. That in, in cases where there is actual theft that has occurred in the way in which we have sinned against people, that we actually need to, according to God's word, give back that which we have sinfully taken. And not only restitution, but also finally turning from our sin. So you're not just feeling bad about it. You're not just acknowledging it. You're not even just hating it or restoring it. You're resolving in your heart, I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to step into a new path and pattern. I'm going to actually live a new way of life. What the Puritans called a new obedience should rise up in our lives. All of these things entail true repentance. And it's not biblical repentance if we simply hopscotch through or over these different elements shrug our shoulders and said, we said sorry already. Why do you keep on bringing this up? Repentance, as well as true forgiveness. Yes, reconciliation does require forgiveness. And of course, forgiveness may take some time. And forgiveness is a Christian calling. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness, which entails resolving to absorb the cost of the sin that's been perpetrated against you, of promising not to actually penalize or punish the other person as they may in fact justly deserve and yet paying down that cost again and again and again. Which of course is a calling that the world will not put before you Forgiveness is increasingly farther and farther out of reach in the minds of most people and not even a moral obligation according to the ways in which our culture deals with sins and evils. But God in Christ has a different program before us. Not to say that forgiveness is easy or should be done flippantly. Not to say that the process is not complex. But reconciliation requires repentance and forgiveness. And to the degree that these are being worked through collectively, through a process, we begin to see emerging in our midst relational repair, which entails restored favor, rebuilt trust, which is not rebuilt overnight or in an instant. And time and a commitment to working through it again and again and again. Friends, this is the kind of reconciliation that this city of God is called to embody or does embody in heaven and that we are called to image forth in our relationships, in our city, in our community. 
We need honest conversations about the wounds that we have from the past, both individually and corporately. And those wounds that we are even in the present causing continually one another. We need to be a community that can name the things that break us apart. We need to be a community that can have a common memory about the past in order that we can move forward in the future. A community that can acknowledge the enmity, the discomfort. A community that can absorb the discomfort and not run away just because things get hard. And that in fact in love knows that our calling, just like Christ did for us, is to assume discomfort for the comfort of others. And to love in this fashion. And to start with repentance. And to anticipate the power of God at work within us. To kill the cynicism that says it don't work or it's not worth it. Again, this is not just for us. This is for the glory of Christ. Every one of us has a story, of course. Struggles, challenges, resentments. Experiences of broader societal injustices and harms. Parts of your own family stories. Parts of your own individual experience. Maybe even relationships in this very room. I've talked myself over the years about my own upbringing and the struggle that I had as a younger child with resentment towards Mexican-Americans that I've had to overcome by the grace of God. But because of hard and really difficult relationships, especially in my junior high years, you know, the boys that would come and sort of push me around and say, hey, Gino, how's your mom? This slur and that slur different words that were used. You know, some of this, one might say, is just simply middle school, junior high stuff. But it left a mark. It leaves a mark, doesn't it? And that's just the beginning of things. We have a story to tell. As well as the stories of how God has changed my heart, softened my heart, begun the healing of my heart. It's not simple. Racism and its wounds are not easily overcome. We need to dispel ourselves of that myth. But it can be at least healed in part as we move together and grow in reconciled community. Will you join us in being a reconciled community like this? Thirdly, we find in this psalm a portrait of a reborn community. Because you see, maybe you're hearing this stuff, and maybe even this talk about reconciliation, you hear it and you're saying, how? But how, how do we do this? It feels impossible. Maybe, maybe you've tried, and maybe you're ready to give up. But see, this psalm, it offers us something by way of hope, I think, See, notice that first of all, it's crucial to observe that the city of Zion is a city with supernatural foundations. It's a city of divine origins. See, right from the start, verse 1, we're told, He, God, has founded his city on the holy mountain. God has founded it. It is not only built by God, it belongs to God. 
And in verse 5, the Most High himself will establish her. Do you know cross-cultural community, humanly speaking, reconciliation, humanly speaking, moving through and healing the legacy of injustice in our midst, humanly speaking, all of it is impossible. I mean, we really need to believe this. We need the power of the Most High. We need God. And so, at least for starters, I invite you to pray. I invite you, if you are catching this vision for what God has called us to, that yes, we must labor, we must love, we must serve, but understand that all our labor and love are in vain if we do not call upon the power of the Most High, if we do not pray for the reconciling blood of Christ to be powerfully at work among us. If you've become jaded about the prospects of reconciliation, if you've become discouraged about racial dialogue and discourse in our nation and in the Christian church, beloved, how much have you prayed for these things? Not just read about them, not just thought about them, not just carped about them, not just uh, spend hours maybe on social media lingering around them. How much have you prayed, believing that this God alone can do? Because this city of God is a city with supernatural foundations, divine origins. And moreover, we see this to be true because the people listed here, the groups that are listed here, are only found in reconciled community, heavenly city, because God has transformed each and every one of them, has pulled them by the grace of God into one another's lives. Again and again, the key refrain that we find throughout this passage is what we hear in verse 4. This one was born in Zion. You see, every single one of us has, in some way or fashion or form, something that indicates that we were physically, biologically born somewhere into someone. I'm not saying you necessarily have that piece of paper, a birth certificate, but there's some proof of your existence in this world biologically. God says that if you're in Christ, you have a spiritual birth certificate. And every single one of you have life in Christ if you've embraced Jesus by faith, on your knees, with joy, and you have in the mind and the heart of God, in the register of heaven, belonging, a place of origin, a place of new birth in heaven. And what this means then is that you have a new ultimate identity, that you see whatever else you might be ethnically and racially, and indeed as important as that is to who you are, that we must be able to say that by the transforming power of Christ, I might humanly be from here or there ethnically, geographically, but where I'm most from is Zion. Who I most am is a citizen of Zion. A person in Christ. 
See, we may be from this place or that group, this region, or this or that family. But in Christ, there's a unity that comes from transformed identity. And I want to make sure that it's clear that we're not saying, the Bible is not saying that our spirituality makes us colorblind as if God and his people should look away and deny the importance of cultural identity. No, in fact, what we find in heaven, according to the book of Revelation and other places, is not a post-racial or post-ethnic heavenly society, but rather what we have is what we find in this passage, a city of God of people that are actually more activated in their cultural distinctives, just not in a way that separates them, but in a way that blends them together for the glory of God, a, a vibrance and a radiance that comes together in a way that we can barely imagine here on earth. No, we're not called to a color blindness, but rather a deeper and truer anchoring of one soul and personhood in the the person of Christ and that Christ identity in a way that frees you to express and acknowledge and interchange out of your human identity as a white American, a black American, a Korean American, a Latino American, as a multiracial American, whatever you might be, or not an American at all, depending on where you might be from. This is what God actually frees us to engage and to unite ourselves around standing first and foremost on that ultimate birth certificate, the one that says, this one, you, me, if you're in Christ, you are born in Zion, brought into the family of God so that you can call one another brother and sisters in the church in such a way that there are no second-class citizens in the community of Christ that there are no outsiders that are unwelcomed into the heart of the city of God. Where we begin to see with new eyes, new resurrection eyes, that one another are actually born all over again, born again people. Born in Zion. Friends, do you see, we have transformed spiritual identity and family. And it's that that we need to dig into and access again and again and again by the grace of God to be able to be in reconciled fellowship one with another. What is it that defines you most? Which isn't to say that the other stuff doesn't define you at all, but what defines you most and what can draw you into relationship and what can give you spiritual power to engage, to forgive, to repent, and to love. Friends, what we need to recognize in closing is what we find in the very beginning and the very end of this psalm. First of all, that this city that's being brought to us is a city that God loves. The Lord, verse 2, loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Our calling is not only to see this vision or even to agree with it and not simply to embrace it, but to love it. This mission for ethnically mixed gathering of reconciled people, will you and I, brothers and sisters, personally not just labor for this vision, but love 
this for the sake of the glory of Christ. And not just love it, but as we find in the last verse of this, as they make music, they will sing, and some translators say the singers and the dancers, all my fountains are in you. There's a joy, a recognition of what God has done in the city of God and even in our midst as the city of God emerges in our relationships. Oh, friends, this is an invitation to joy, not just to labor, to the dynamic, yes, unpredictable, yes, sometimes tear-filled, yes, sometimes wearying, and yet ever joyful adventure of finding, discovering, seeking, reconciled community among people that are natural enemies, former enemies, still working through enmity, people, for the glory of Christ. A robust community of faith, a rewarding community of faith. We want to invite you to be a part of this with us. God in Christ, in the city of God, in this city, and in this church. Let's pray. So Jesus, we bring ourselves to you asking that you would have mercy upon us. Oh, we confess in these fraught times, it's really hard to think hopefully about a way forward with all our impasses around this subject of race outside the church and sometimes worst of all in the church. So we need the mercy of Christ. Thank God that there's no shortage of mercy by the power of the Holy Spirit. All our fountains are in you. All of the life and the hope that we have is found in you. And so we ask that you would come and work in us and do this, as we said, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.